Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with former USC Trojan and Raiders first-round draft pick Todd Marinovich. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with a fellow Trojan. We attended USC at the same time back in 1988. I played second base. He was our quarterback. You're going to get a chance to meet the freshman player of the year. It was a number one pick of the Raiders in the 1993 draft. Ladies and gentlemen, Todd Marinovich. Todd, thanks for coming on the program. Booney. Great to see you, or not to see you, but to hear you and hang out. I'm stoked. Cool. I've, I've been thinking about this all day. When people meet Todd Marinovich for the first time, what do they want to talk to you about? What do they ask you? Uh, it's usually... Um, it's, <laughs> it's a, a wide range of things, which keeps it exciting. I don't know if they're going to bring up um, old SC days, um, even the very short-lived Raider days, or um, my struggle with addiction, or um, it could be anything, which, like I said, makes um, running into people kind of an adventure. Because you know what, Brad, it wasn't always like that. I was um, really not comfortable when people wanted to stop and talk. And you know what that's about. And because um, I know you've experienced it. And it's a little, it was really strange at first when people, you know, that I don't know, know my name. And I don't know if that is, if you get used to that or, um, it's a little uncomfortable, but now it's different. And if someone does recognize me, it's, um, it's an honor for me to honor them and, and hear them out about what they remembered or the memory that they have. And so it's, um, times have changed, uh, and in, in the world, obviously, but in, in my life as of today. So, um, that was a long answer to a short question, but um, there you have it. No, but it's good because, you know, I, I thought about it and I'm like, wonder if it's hard for Todd because your your whole, you know, since you were a kid, it's kind of been, yeah, everything's been so public, you know, and, and right. you, mentioned, <laughs> you, you mentioned for you, you know, at first you didn't like it and you kind of shied away from it. And, you know, I'm sure after a while you get used to it. And sometimes we're, we're remembered for this or, you know, the first stories are, let's talk about SC. Let's talk about the Raiders. Uh, you know, those are cool things. Like even today for me, people come up and we talk about Seattle and I'm a more appreciative as, as I move on in life. It's like when you're sure. in the moment and you're the man and, and you're at the top of your game, it, it's almost like you have blinders on. It's like, let me get to the, where I need to get to, you know, I got to play tonight. I got to have right. a good game. But right. when you're, when you're able to step right. away from it a little bit for me, I look at it as more of an appreciative thing, not a pain in the neck. Hey, my son was a right. big fan. Will you sign this for him? Well, yeah. now it's like, right. you know, 
it, it's cool to be recognized for what you did, even if it was years ago. But but in your situation, right. I always wondered. I said, you know, everything's so public for Todd. They want to talk about this or that, and and uh, interesting, interesting for me. Yeah, All right, you was, grew up in hard you, for go. It was hard for a while, and, and because of how short you know my uh, um, pro career was that. People, when I'd run into them for a while there, I mean, I couldn't hide in L.A. When we're going back to the early 90s, Brett, there's not too many 6'5", red, orange-haired guys walking around Los Angeles. And so um, when I left the Raiders um, three years in, when I run into people, that's the number one question is like, are you, what's up? Are you going to play? If I had a nickel for every time about – am I going to play again? Wow. And it was the, really the last thing that I wanted at that time. And so, um, I hid because <laughs> I couldn't, um, take it at that point in my life. But like I said, it's, it's different now. Grew up in orange County. Uh, you know, we didn't know it at the time, you know, we didn't meet each other until we got to college, but, uh, right. kind of right. We, we kind of lived down the street from each other, 15 minutes. I was down in, in Villa park. Um, wow. so much of your life's been, you know, chronicled, written about, um, I just want to hear it from, from Todd Marinovich, your childhood, give it to me from the start. You're a little kid and you decide I'm going to be a football player. Walk me through that childhood. You know, our, uh, some of our upbringing definitely parallels one another because I, I'm just assuming yours was similar in the fact that um, your dad was a player, my dad was a player, and so all I was around was training camps, um, um, workouts, players over at the house all the time. And so that was my earliest uh, memory, just being around these giant people. Because, you know, I'm a child, five to eight to ten years old, and these men are giants. Um, and I wanted to be a part of that. I felt the camaraderie early on as a kid being around teams that there was something special there. Um, and then, obviously, I just wanted to be around my dad. And since that's what he did, um, was a coach at position coach at first but then kind of developed into the strength and conditioning guy um who ended up putting all those tests in for the combine uh, years ago which they still use today to uh test college guys coming out but um yeah i just want wanted to be a part of that and, and um going you know being an sc family i was going to that coliseum with my grandfather the chief um my earliest memories. And so weekends, Brett, were a little classic. This is what it was. It was my grandpa taking me to a high school game on a Thursday or Friday night. It was usually Edison High School because um, my grandpa's son, Craig, was a USC quarterback. And his childhood buddy was um, Will Workman, who was a coach at um, Edison High School. And they were dominant, man. I mean, dominant where they were playing Fountain Valley for the CIF championship. You, you might be, uh, be able to remember this, Brett, but in the late 70s, they had to move it to the Big A because there were so many people for this finals. And it was a 
in conference championship because they both came from the Sunset League, but they're playing for the whole uh, enchilada in, in the 70s. And so I'm a ball boy um, for Edison High School during this time. And then that Friday night um, would conclude high school football. And then Saturdays were the Trojans up at the Coliseum with my grandpa um, soaking all that in, all the tradition and history. And then on Sundays would be um, the Ram game. And it was when the Rams were uh, local here in Orange County, and my dad was coaching for them. And so uh, the fall weekends were jam-packed with really cool memories and experiences that um, it was in my kind of – if it wasn't in my DNA, it was the environment that produced it. Yeah, that's it, you kind of did. You grew up in that football life, and and uh, yeah. like you mentioned, you know my uh, you know my upbringing. Dad played until man, he played. We were a year away from playing in the big leagues together. together. We did we didn't make it, but you know I was in the minor uh-huh. leagues, and so I didn't. Wow, you know I was thinking about our our lives and and how they paralleled a little bit, and and. The difference is my dad, for my childhood, I knew what I was, you know, I knew what it was like. I knew my dad was a baseball player. I knew that he played, uh, he had to go to work every day at three o'clock, you know, from the time I could remember. And I knew then after a week, he'd go on a road trip for a week. So I kind of grew up playing baseball and baseball was my passion and my love. Man, I can count probably on two hands the amount of games my dad got to go see me play because you know after a high school after day at high school what times are our games in the afternoon the baseball games are at 3 30 well dad's already at the ballpark right. at 3 30 so he never right. got to see me play and the differences though between us is my 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 life was public once once i became a player once i became a big league right. player your life was a lot more public as a kid for, for, you know, for what you went through and, and that cover of Sports Illustrated came out. And I know you've talked about this a million times, but I, I, I want to know how much did they get right and how much did they get wrong? And how bad did you want to be a football player? That's all you wanted to do from the get-go. I can't remember the article, but where it started um... – with the media for me was a, the first article was in people magazine when I was a freshman at modern day. And that just, and it was the diet that blew it up. It wasn't the, the secondary part of the article is, you know, he's pretty good because he's playing varsity as a freshman, but the article really was directed like a lot of, of those type magazines is to sell them. And um, the diet turned out to be the lure and the freak show. And um, that's all that any headline began with from that time on from 14 through my, uh, through my college career was the kid that never had a big Mac. And you say, (laughs) what did they get right? And what did they get wrong? The only part they got wrong was the lies that I was telling them. So, um, I can't blame anybody. <laughs> and the thing about it was, uh, Brett, is that I, uh, it came from a place of, 
self um, preservation or preservation. Um, I was in fear of um, what, you know, my dad and how he would react to the fact that um, even though the diet and his intention was true, but um, my mom and my mom's side of the family had been letting me, you know, eat things that kids eat. And um, that's donuts with my grandpa in the morning uh, on a, you know, a Saturday morning or a Sunday, he'd take us down in the golf cart on the peninsula. And it was just beautiful experiences that if you've ever met Marv, um, he is the most, one of the most, or was one of the most passionate and dedicated humans I've ever um, been around and creative almost mad scientist like and if you're on um, the same page then it's all good but if you veer off if you veer off or dare I say go against you um, he ruled with fear and so what was the um, the reason for me telling stories when you're 14 it was to save my ass and um, it became a runaway locomotive, the whole media, and and you know how it can happen so quickly, and every but then everybody in in the you know nations jumping on board on that one, and um, I just felt like uh, more of a freak show than a quarterback. It was always the second thing stated that you know he's, he he is a pretty good quarterback, but uh, anyway, it. It's uh, it's been a, a learning experience, let me tell you. And now that I have kids, would I subject them um, to the media in any way before they um, leave high school? Absolutely not. Um, and it's just from my experience that that's just unfair to everybody, including me and my family. Um, and because, um, as you know, that um, boundaries are, are broken, and but I set myself up for that whole thing. And um, like I said, it's a learn. It's such a learning experience, Brett. And when your business is everybody's business, and especially um, with my struggle with addiction over the years, it's been uh, challenging to say the least. Yeah, and and uh, for those of you listening to the Boone podcast, uh, Todd's got a cousin. His name is Mark Furtig, and he was on. He, he played. He was a teammate of mine on the SC football team. So I Furtig. remember too. I, I remember. I remember. We, you know, because the rest of us, we're coming to high school. You know, I'm known as oh Brett's Brett's dad's Bob Boone, and his his grandpa yeah. is Ray Boone. You know, that was my pressure yeah. as a kid. Nothing, right. and it was no big deal to me. But I remember getting to SC and, and we, you know, that was, you're right. It was a big deal. And they, they ran away, they ran all over the place with that article and that robo QB. And I remember at SC right. going out, oh, who the, who the hell's this robo QB? I want to see him. And, right. uh, you showed up and, 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 you know, we all read all, all the, the, about the diet and he's never had this and he's never had that. Meanwhile, Ferdig's telling me, he's like, Booney, 
I used to pick Todd up and and I'd throw a blanket over him and we'd go through the Carl's Jr. and we'd get burgers. And I said, yeah, I knew because when I saw you and I met you for the first time, I'm like, this is just a normal dude, man. He's coming to college. Don't tell me he hasn't had a cheeseburger before. But you're right. It, it, it was it, it was so written. And that was such that the, you, you had to be you. I, I felt at the time that you felt you had to live up to everything that was said, whether it was true or false. And when I um, took the show on the road up the five freeway uh, to South Central, as I like to call it, um, it changed in the way that how liberating for the first time in my life. And I think this is with any 18 year old that uh, goes to uh, college for the first time away from the folks how what a great experience that is and i and i speak a lot to high schools and i just did earlier um today over zoom which is cool um they were in north carolina that i i strongly like suggest if if you're on the fence at all about going to college just to go for just the experience alone what a cool um it was uh, one of the, if not one of my most fondest memories um, back then. And so, yeah, so when I got there, that, like you said, that reputation was already there about this clean eating um, test tube quarterback. And so when I was away from the home for the, like the first time, it was like the party is on. And you don't have to look far <laughs> to find it. And so when this um, this media uh, this this painted picture of me was there before I arrived, and when I arrived, I had a joint in my mouth. Then it really erupted. They're like, "Whoa! Wait a second! This guy that doesn't put sugar or any artificial." preservatives in his body he's got a fatty and he's drinking out of that keg like he's a fish what is up and so that um put a wrench in things with uh, obviously the coaching staff and that's what really the whole controversy my sophomore year with larry smith um i played a huge part in that and larry just didn't know how to deal with me and I got to experience um, something with the Holsmith family when I went back to Arizona where Cheryl, um, Coach Larry Smith's wife, uh, resides to make an amends um, because I would have done it to Coach Smith if he were still around. And so I got to spend the afternoon with Cheryl. And I had no idea, man, um, about Larry. And it was because when I'm 1920 at SC, I didn't care. Um, didn't care that he had serious roots with Bo Schembechler playing at, coaching at like Bowling Green and then an assistant at Michigan. And so with us playing them in the Rose Bowl and winning, I didn't know the magnitude that it was, that it held for him. That was like beating his mentor in Bo's last final game. And I have it burned into my memory when we're trying to seal the end of the game and we uh, fake it on fourth down and I look over and I see Bo just spike his headset and I just went, we got him. 
And that's why I went to SC. I went to SC over Stanford for one reason and one reason only, and that was to win a Rose Bowl. And Stanford at the time was Jack Elway. John's dad was the coach, and they had been recruiting me for four years. And it was hard to say no to that. Uh, I, lo- I liked the whole, everything about Stanford, um, their quarterback tradition. They were appealing to my art side. And um, the deciding factor was my grandfather, the chief. He asked he didn't put any pressure. He just said, I got one question for you. Where do you want to live when you're done going to school? And I went, Southern California. And he goes, there's your answer. Go to cool. SC. Well, it started at Modern Day, and, and you mentioned Modern Day earlier. You started as a freshman. I mean, in Modern Day in Orange County, that's like a, a quarterback factory. And yeah. you were the first quarterback ever to start as a freshman. So you talk about the upbringing and the, and the diet and everything going on already, but you're, you're kind of doing it at this point. Like, I'm the first freshman quarterback ever to start at modern day. So you're kind of setting the precedent. You're living up to all this already. You and end up I going there. Scared to death. <laughs> Let me but you got you. it, but you got I'll, it done. <laughs> I was so scared. And I got, I get to, I did refer to that a lot when I'm in the huddle, um, with these old Raider vets, um, and I'm 20, and Max Montoya looks at me and says, I got kids older than you. Um, I said, you know what? The, the, the most gnarly jump and most scared I've ever been was that freshman year playing as a varsity. Um, because those are men. You're playing with 17, 18-year-olds. A lot of them are fully matured. And I uh, had no hair on my nuts. Hadn't, <laughs> you know, my voice hadn't even dropped. And I'm scared to take showers after games. That was like my biggest fear, but um, I got through it. And, uh, and you know what helped me get through it? Listen to this. You'll get a kick out of that. My receiver that came out half the year had been played was Gary McKnight's starting forward, Mike Jackson. Chris, my, he was 6'5" split end, led the, uh, the whole county in receiving in one year because all I had to do, it was before his time, um, he would just go up and get the ball. And it didn't take me long to figure out that um, it's a mismatch on the outside when you got a 5'9 corner and a 6'5 basketball starting forward that can jump out of the gym. Um, it really made it easy for me. And so um, it was, a, it was a, a very competitive league at the time with Servite, Bishop Amont, um, St. Paul. We played um, Bishop Amont, and I remember Eric Bienemy, who's in uh, the conversation today um, about possibly uh, being up for the SC job. And I just think, what a creative and great uh choice just in the fact that I played against this guy tough as nails, one of the best running backs I've ever played against, but just been a solid human being and has been around um, young men and coaching guys since he played. Um, so yeah, that experience at modern day was um, one that set the tone for me because it was big time football at the Santa Ana Bowl, killer little venue for high school sports. And we'd sell that thing out and it was, it, 
I got the taste then that I liked playing in front of people in big games, and that's it's fun. Played there two years, then you went to you transferred to Capistrano, and you mentioned uh, you mentioned Stanford as an option. And I'm sure at this stage, Todd, I mean, you're getting recruited by everybody. So, so you you basically thought it came down to SC and Stanford for you, and and Gramps helped yes. helped kind of nudge you into the SC thing. Without a doubt, I narrowed it down early, and I just said um, I'm going to stay on the West Coast, and then just because it, it's overwhelming, I I had a trip scheduled to go to University of Miami. Um, because they were national champ contenders in the late 80s and were putting out quarterbacks from Bernie Kosar to Jim Kelly. They were just doing it. And so that was a consideration. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't regret anything. Um, but Jimmy Johnson was the only guy I know alive at the time to stop a plane from taxiing and bring it back to the uh, gate because he got word that I canceled my trip down there. I was receiving an award in Washington, D.C., and the plan was to fly from that award down to Miami, and they had it all laid out. You know how recruiting trips are. Uh, Michael Irvin was going to be my host. He was going to take me to a reggae festival. I'm like, sounds great. But after that uh, awards banquet, I was with my mom and my sister. I said, you know what? I'm not going to want, I don't want to go to Miami. It was just for the experience. So I just said, yeah, going flying back to LA. They stopped that plane. We were already on, on the runway, brought it back and they hand me the phone and he wants to know what the heck is up. Cause we got this, we got this weekend plan for you. And my mom was floored. She's like, I've never seen this happen. Jimmy's got some pull. Um, and so I didn't know. I never made the trip down there, but it was a funny story anyway. Yeah, but if you knew, you knew. You know, look at it this way. You yeah, saved, I knew. You right. saved him a lot of. You, you, you saved him a lot of trouble. Yeah, true. You know, you you, yeah. you cut it off real quick. Sometimes you just got to tell them no, and then they're not wondering. You know, it's over. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, I I got so many questions for you. Your upbringing, the way you trained, um. How much do you think it benefited you? Think it helped that much? I, I think about it this way. I was a baseball rat. That's all I did. All I wanted to do is play. If if you know I ran out of friends to play catch with, I was throwing a tennis ball against the garage door till the sun went down and I got called in and I had to go to bed. That's that's just the way I did. As far as dad's influence on me, you know, people ask uh-huh. me. All the time, especially when I was coming up and making my way through the minor leagues. Oh, must be nice. How much did your dad help you as a baseball player? Right. I said, to be honest with you, zero. What? We never what? talked about anything until I became a professional. I said, you know, no, that's not true. The one thing he did teach me was how to be a pro, how to behave, how to play the right way, how to walk like a what big What age were you? What uh, age were you when he was teaching me that? Well, and not necessarily. No, he just taught me by example. Example. Because, yeah, because by, like I had mentioned before, he was never there for my games. We might have a talk. Hey, how'd your game go today? Dad, I only, you know, I went 0 for 4 and I didn't swing. Well, what do you think you did wrong? But we weren't on a daily basis breaking it down in my childhood. 
Now, fast forward to when I retire and I have kids of my own and, and I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm coaching travel ball and I yeah. see the parents and I see the parents and I see how they behave. And, you know, knowing, having all this knowledge of living life and, and, and doing a lot of things and being a lot of different places, I kind of have an eye for a kid that's got that it factor, or a kid that doesn't. Sure. And my main goal as a coach was 99.999% of these kids got no chance in hell of stepping on a big league field one day. My job right. is to, to coach them as good as I can, be a good role model, and one day – if they look back and go, man, Brett, remember when you coached our team, we were 13 year old, man, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed myself. That was my goal of coaching. I want kids to be kids and I want them to enjoy their childhood because it's just, I feel like the really talented players, whether it be football, whether it be basketball, hockey, baseball, if they have a passion for their sport, they will play at the top level because they've got They'll that. They'll find infant. a way. But I, but I see nowadays, the, yeah, I see the kids nowadays, everything is blown out of proportion. The father's got six quarterback coaches for his son and a nutritionist and he's 12 and I'm going, you realize that if he doesn't have what it takes, he's got no chance. And I don't care what you do, but I think about Marv kind of spurred that generation of parents. He just happened to have a kid that had the ability to get to the top, to the, to the highest level. And that was you. And I, but if he, and if I, he would have had a regular I kid, wonder, we wouldn't know that. <laughs> I, yeah. Dude. I wonder too about, um, people pose the question, if I didn't do any of that, how far would I have gone? And that's a toughie. I think, um, the best athletes or the best, whatever they do at their sport, um, for the most part, are successful in spite of the training, because um, most of the training is counterproductive. And it took my dad 50 years to find out, like a system. But otherwise, it was just experimentation, and that's what he did with me. And so I got, I got it all. I got to experience from the Eastern Bloc. Uh, countries that were really successful uh, in the Olympics with speed training and plyometrics and uh, all kinds of different techniques. Marv was a mad scientist, so I got it all, but he didn't hone it until the last 10 years with Troy Palomalo with the Steelers and his performance, it shows. (laughs) What an animal. (laughs) I started watching football again um, because of Troy. I didn't even turn on a game for a while. And Troy started training with Marv as a sophomore at SC and then stayed with him his whole career every off season. And so that's when my dad was really honing it in. So I didn't even get to play with uh, like doing the right type of training. And that is next level stuff. Um, But I think that what spending all that time, Brett was the key, just the whole dedication, like, you were putting it into practice because you were doing stuff that was just mimicking playing baseball, which I think is the best. I mean, most basketball players that come from inner cities are just, they're not, they don't have a freaking nutritionist and a, a trainer. They're just playing all day. They're not into Xbox and emails and Twitter. They're just playing. And it's no wonder 
that these kids are successful on the court or on the field because that's all they do. And as you know, there's just no shortcuts. Um, it just takes a lot of everyday practice. <laughs> yeah. Rep, rep, it's repetition. Like it's, yeah, it's repetition and it's a hunger. How bad do you want it? Correct. All right. You get to FC at 88. We come in at the same time. Uh, you redshirt your freshman year under Rodney Pete, who was moonlighting over with us on the baseball field playing third base. Uh, and then the, going into the next year, you know, I I, I think uh, I read that Pat O'Hare was going to be the starting quarterback. Something happened. Correct. But you end up getting thrown into the starting position. You have a hell of a year. And, and you talked about modern day being that first time where, wow, you know, it was mm-hmm. big time football for, you know, when we're putting it in perspective at the high school level. Modern day right. is about as big as it gets. But now all of a sudden, you're playing at SC, which at the time, you know, if not the top 10 premier college football, in the, you're playing at the Coliseum. You got 70,000, 80,000 people. You have a hell of a year in 89. You guys go 9 and 2. You beat Michigan in the Rose Bowl. Uh, and I believe it's the first time a quarterback started as a freshman at SC since like World War II. And that was you. Um, how did that, as much as the fanfare you had coming in, uh, did you feel any of that pressure? Like, all right, I'm robo, I'm robo quarterback. Everybody expects me to be the greatest thing in the world. Did you put those on yourself or you just go out and play? Bro, it was all about that red shirt year. If I didn't have that red shirt year, there would have been no me. Um, it was survival. I was practicing against the number one defense and these guys weren't fucking around and they didn't care if I had a red jersey on because I was a red shirt guy. I wasn't playing and I could mend if I got hurt. Um, they traveled me just so I could watch Rodney and how he, how he handled and carried himself um, doing all the things the quarterback's got to do. And it was such a learning, amazing experience because that guy was on point. I mean, Rodney, I think, was runner-up in the Heisman that year, um, if not second, third. Um, so getting to a practice against this number one defense, it was junior sale coming off the edge. And we have Tim Ryan, an NFL played 10 years, Dan Owens, another, Scott Ross. And these guys were angry, it seemed, all the time. And I paid the price. And so practicing against these guys for a a whole season and then getting to travel and see the road and see different universities and what we do um, was priceless, without a doubt. And so when I got against, Illinois in my first game and was kind of shoved in because I wasn't starting. It was Pat O'Hare went down with a knee, uh, a bad knee injury a week before the opener against Illinois. Uh, The defense, any of the defenses that I faced didn't compare to our starting front and secondary. So it was almost a step down. It was like it became slower. So I was given the Greatest gift of all time then was a redshirt freshman year. That's that's really cool story. 
And uh, yeah, I remember yeah. at that time. Yeah, SC was good. I mean, they had that they had that run during Rodney in your time, and then they had the big run with the with the Bush and the Liner. We're a little down on right. our luck lately. Uh, let's get let's get it going. Make some phone calls. A cool, a, a cool little story about Junior, who rest his soul, uh, was uh, a larger than life spirit and kindness that came from him. But when I first met him, I was a senior. Uh, down in Capitol Valley, and we scrimmaged them in passing league, and he was the quarterback for Ocean, Ocean View High School. And we did it a few times, so I had seen him. And then when I got to SC, he had put on like 45, 50 pounds and just looked like he looked to everybody, junior say I like. But before that, he was a lean basketball player. And in uh, practice, he'd be coming so hard off that corner, and he would – high pitch like an Indian where I said, junior, if you didn't do that, you could get there more times because you're giving it away. I mean, and I was happy he was giving it away, but he would give it away with this. Just, he had a super high voice and coming out of such a stud was funny at times, but what a great, like hall of fame player, but hall of fame person. Yeah. Junior. What a good dude. Yeah. After your freshman year, you get, this is what I, I, I read this. I thought this was really cool. You get invited to Ronald Reagan's place. Did you go? <laughs> there was no thought of going. It was just the offer that was just the whole phone call. I thought was a spoof when they told me in the locker room that you have a call um, up in Larry's office. And I was like, that, I don't take calls in Blair's office for one. <laughs> and Claire Snow's the secretary, and she's like, yeah, Coach Smith's not in there. You can go in there, and you have a phone call from the president. And I looked at Claire, like, okay. And then I pick it up, and it's his fucking, well, it's his voice. And I'm tripping. And, he's, and he just explained that he was in the hospital having some procedure done, and he was laid up, and he watched the Washington State, which Trojans called the drive where we completed or converted four fourth downs on that 91 yard drive and then go for two to win it. He, uh, president Reagan was like one of the best performances I've ever seen. So if you're ever in the area, Santa Barbara, I got a little ranch. <laughs> and oh, like, wow. Do you have a pool or a pond? Do you have a pool or a pond? And he's like, <laughs> the pond's probably better for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty cool though. Not too many people get a call from the president. Uh, going into your sophomore season, now you got all you got all the hype. You're the Heisman candidate. Um, how'd that season go for you? I know you had, you know, and he and he passed away uh, years ago. But I I know you butted heads with Larry Smith. Um, mm -hmm. How did that season go for you in 1990? It started off with a performance. At the kickoff classic in the Meadowlands against the Syracuse Orangemen. And I had no consideration whatsoever of entering the draft, but the uh, headlines of the game following on Sunday, the USA Today, was Marinovich swan song with a question mark. And we played well. And we blew Syracuse out. And I'm like, what? Like, where, where does this come from? Um, and that 
kind of set the tone for the year because we weren't the same team for one when you lose a defense uh loaded with linebackers like junior um and down linemen like we did you're a different team and uh we were um and it was a struggle because that's when uh my uh 21-year-old invincible attitude is butting heads with a Midwestern um, coach that has roots in discipline and running it like an army. Um, that's where it really got explosive. And But I'll tell you, it ended in the Rose Bowl, uh, the last game of the season, with like a spectacular uh, memory and finish against the Bruins, 45-42. And, you know, going into that game, I wasn't good in a good headspace because uh, Coach Smith wasn't giving me the nod throughout the season. He was putting Shane Foley in, who was an, uh, like the best backup you could possibly have because he could step in at any time and lead the offense down for a touchdown. And he did it several times when Larry would yank me out. Um, so uh, I was going in and out uh, that whole year. He wouldn't take me on some trips if uh, we could win handily uh, like Arizona state. I just stayed behind um, for missing class. And towards uh, the end, he called me in and said, what's up with you in class? I said, I'd hate school. Well, if you could do anything, what would it be? He said, I want to go to the art department. And he's like, why don't you go to the art department then? I was like, well, uh, Marv's not big on it. He loves to say there's a reason why there's the term starving artist. Can't make any money out of it. And Larry's like, dude, do that. Um, and when it dawned on me, when the head man over there is giving me the go ahead, go ahead, and it changed everything. I walked over there and it was like, I found my people. <laughs> yeah. And because of our practice schedule, I couldn't take a lot of the studio classes. So they just gave me a key to the whole department so I could go in there after practice and paint, sculpt just get creative it was the best semester of uh, my entire life even though on the field it was very tumultuous um off the field it was some of my fondest memories of school because i got to do what i i really wanted to do and i knew that early on brett when i was at newport elementary playing in kindergarten that art class seemed like it went by in three seconds and then recess went by the same way. I was like, I'm going to be doing some kind of sport and doing some kind of art because time just flies by. It's so true. It's so true. And math class for me took like a week and a half for, for an hour. <laughs> yeah. Totally. I got I got Bob Boone, Stanford grad, banging the bat on the table. You're going to get this algebra two before you get to go to spring break, Dad. I suck at algebra two. I still I still remember those times too. So you end up being uh, you end up signing that year. You end up being first round pick of the Raiders. Oh, I got to backtrack yeah. a little bit. After the Sun Bowl that year. Oh. 
You get arrested. Sun Bowl. Get arrested for cocaine a month after the Sun Bowl. So now Let's you're entering the draft. The Sun Bowl for a second, dude. Go ahead. Go to the Sun Bowl. We we just can't skip over the Sun Bowl. Yeah, let me lay it out for you. So when you, as you know, back then the winner of the Pac-10 goes to the back then to the Pac-10. They go to the Rose Bowl, and the winner of the Big Ten goes to the Rose Bowl. It was a cool situation. It had been like that for a fucking long time. And so when we fell short, even though we beat the Dirty Little Bruins um, the week before, we turned down – we didn't know this. The team didn't know this because Larry didn't bring this to us – that we turned down going to Hawaii. Instead, we're going to El Paso, Texas to play in the Sun Bowl where it's snowing. It's so – my smart ass says something about that whole thing. Like, why aren't we going to Hawaii if we're not playing in the granddaddy of them all? It just made sense to me. Um, Larry didn't think so. And so we go down there and it is a defensive just battle because Michigan State's not joking around. And it's like seven, six, the whole game. And I get a tap on my shoulder and it's John Matzkow, the off, uh, offensive line coach. And he goes, I uh, came to let you know that um, we're going with Shane. And I'm like, what? The week before, we just pulled out one of the greatest upsets in, in the rivalry history. And I'm like, wow, all right. They get the, we get the ball back. We go with Shane. The offense kind of sputters, and we punt. And then here comes Matzkow again. And he's like, when we get the ball back, we're going back with you. And I was like, what? And he goes, Are you, can you give me an answer? And I say, and here comes Larry. So Larry sees that I'm not jumping on the fact that he's going to put me in the game again. And now Larry comes over very hostile and upset and says, I want to know right fucking now, are you going back in? And I looked at him and I looked at our bench where all the offensive linemen and the receivers and running backs are waiting together. I said, I'll go in for these guys. And he lost it. And that's when ESPN caught him verbally assaulting me and me turning around, walking the other way saying, I'm out of here. Um, Needless to say, we never got the ball back, and I never even needed to go back into the game. Um, and I got on the phone and called my dad, and he said, yeah, they got you reading your lips on uh, SportsCenter that you're out of here. And it was uh, – if, if I have a regret, it would be working through that and staying with the guys that I came in with because I, I – it was a feeling that I had abandoned them for sure that I didn't even realize at the time. This came out 20 years later because these guys are um, part of my life. This Trojan family is real. And I thought it was a crock of shit when I was there. Um, and I just didn't know. And I wasn't aware of it or wanted to really tap into it. But it's taken, it takes what it takes. And now I realize that, yeah, um, if if there was one regret, it would be staying yeah staying there and finishing it out with my guys that I came in with. It is amazing though, you know. We all have regrets, and we all look at look back at things and say, "Man, I wish I would have handled this in a better way than I did." Right. Uh, you know, right. things only. I think things always happen for a reason, and 
you know, I've got a point in my life where the past is the past and I, and I go forward from here and I do that every day. And it's like, there's so many great things of my past and there's some negative stuff too. Uh, but I'm not going to live in that. You know, you're a kid. This is this what you do. You were Todd Veridovich. You were you were a rock star. You know, in those SC days, and and I can see you see it with with guys now professionally. They're so young, and and I sit there, you know, and, and analyze baseball players, especially young baseball players, and I see them do something uh, kind of like, come on, man, you can't be doing. It. But but I then I take a moment and I think, well, I was 21 you once. Catch yourself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was 21 you know once, and I'd have, I'd have probably it, done that too. You, you know when it dawned on me? I went back for a salute to Troy uh, celebration that they have every year, and they'll honor a team. And they happen to be honoring our 1989 team and my uncle's team, a 1965 team at the time. And so we're back there on campus. It's a big hoopla, and in come the players, and it it was like hit me between the eyes and a lightning bolt shot and went, Oh my God, they are kids. And why I see them like everybody else sees them with all this armor on and underneath that armor, these guys are young people that aren't adults that are thrust into this stage, this grand national stage with unbelievable pressure that, people forget that they're kids and that's and it put it in perspective for me brett that man i can give myself a break because i was fucking 18 19 20 21 with the raiders come on what (laughs) what? it's like what do you expect (laughs) that's what that's what kids do yes It's it's a place of making mistakes and learning and when it's um out there for everybody to have a comment about that is uh, that's putting that's that's making it tough really come on it's like shit i i just did a a little podcast about walking walking in someone's shoes and the the title was just that if you can't take yourself mentally and put it in somebody else's shoes and just to contemplate that what would it be like and here's a great example my son for some reason he's 12 can't stand justin bieber and i'm a freaking huge fan just for the fact that that motherfucker's survived what he's been through at a such a grand scale i can't even comprehend but i have experienced a cat like a fraction of what this kid has experienced and so i'm on his freaking team and my son has this perception that see, he hasn't lived long enough or even cares to know about his history. But when you do put yourself in somebody's shoes just for a freaking second, it can change your perspective almost instantly. And I think your, your son one day will realize, okay, now I get. My dad, dad's a fan, but you know what? He's a kid right now. There's no reason to have to explain it to him. One day he'll go, all right, dad, now I get it. Remember when, when you always told me you liked Justin Bieber and I didn't, now I understand. That's, that's life lessons, man. How, how did you characterize uh, your SC career? Um, character. Well, how do I characterize it? How do you sum it up? um, How do you sum it up? What are your thoughts of it? I love to say I uh, was part 
of a championship team, and that was the Rose Bowl champions. And that's, like I said, that's why I went to SC. And to be able to say that I'm a Rose Bowl champion with that team was so special. Um, it was a, it was really a Cinderella season for me in my redshirt freshman year. Um, yeah, we got huge momentum from that win up at Washington State that Reagan saw and a lot of people. And then we went back to South Bend and lost just one that I still think about um, to those Irish. Uh, and they went on to win the national championship, I think, that year. Um, we, Brett, we had first and goal on the nine. And we had four attempts at it. We threw it four times and couldn't get it in for the win. We lost like what year? What year was that? What year was that? That was our Rose Bowl uh, season of 89, 90. That's right. I was at that game. Holy shit. And we were up on them. And that was the game of the fight that occurred before the game. That was so gnarly. So I'm warming up like we do as a team. We're done offensively. So I'm running the length of the field to get to the tunnel. And since I'm early, I make it through. Now I'm up in the locker room waiting and waiting, waiting. Then all of a sudden, guys start straggling in, beat the heck up from trainers to security guys, guys lost teeth, black eyes, bloody noses. And we were like, holy shit. So they, since we're traveling, we travel light with probably 50 guys or something. And since it's Notre Dame's home game, they're 120 deep. And so when we watched the film on this, bro, it was like unfair advantage where three guys would be holding one while the other one's just taking uppercut, uppercut shots. And so this was all pregame. And so we came out obviously fired up and got up on them like 21-7 half, maybe. And then, um, you know what? It was an experience, truly, because it was my first experience out of the West Coast where fans knew when to get loud. And it can change the game, especially for a quarterback trying to direct his offense with verbal, uh, you know, audible commands. That just don't happen when an opposing stadium wants to get loud. And I'd yeah. never experienced that um, prior to uh, Notre Dame um, in a way that was like, whoa, I get it. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was, a cool, it was a cool experience because that was my yeah. one and only game I've ever seen at Notre Dame. And it happened because they had worked out somehow through the, you know, through the athletic, through the baseball team over there. We could go to the game if we agreed to play in an exhibition game against, you know, their team, which we, that's not the reason we were going. We ended up playing the game because that was part of our contract for going out there. Right. But you know how it, well, you don't know how it is. Well, you do, but you were playing when you're at SC and going to the Coliseum, it's kind of a, all right, we go to the game. We, kind of hang out. All right. Now it's about halftime. We're winning. We're losing. Now it's time to go to fraternity row yeah. You go to Notre Dame, it's a different experience. It was sitting on bench seats, and it was a completely different college football experience watching it in Notre Dame or watching it at the Coliseum in Southern California. It was a real cool thing. And you said, now you get it as a fan, as a football fan. Now I get why Notre Dame is Notre Dame after that one time getting to 
to go to that stadium and, and, and watch that game. Dude, one of the other games that really set the tone for me at SC was when I was redshirting and watching Rodney. We had a showdown against Oklahoma, and Jamel Holloway was the quarterback, a local kid from L.A. that um, was like number two, number three. And the Coliseum was the first time I'd come out of that tunnel with a sold-out Coliseum. I mean, jam-packed. Probably at the time it held 97, and it was stuffed. And I got to watch, because the cool thing about being a redshirt freshman when you're not playing, I'm still practicing and bonding with these guys. And so I'm watching my friends have the most fun watching Scott Ross. I will never forget him playing inside linebacker and single-handedly blowing up plays and then on the sidelines telling me, watch me on this next one, dude and going out there in the next series and blowing up a play and then turning towards the crowd and doing the who guitar straight arm circles with this. That was a celebration tackle dance. And I went, I want to be on that field so bad. I will do anything. (laughs) And that whole experience was like, that was college football at its highest at the Coliseum, number one or number three, it was a top three game. And it was so electric. And so people can say things about our L.A. crowd. But in big games, they show up. Now, if we suck, they're probably not. But it goes with the territory, right? <laughs> yeah. That's it. What have you done for me lately? You know, I've been on some great teams that if we don't win, there's nobody in the crowd. We're winning every night. The place is rocking. And there's a lot of shit to do and a lot of teams to see in L.A. And um, so there's other stuff going on. And but when it's the big when it's a big game, man, there's nothing like that Coliseum when it's rocking. All right. So now you're going into the draft Raiders. They take you in the first round. Now, did you get arrested for cocaine in between the Sun Bowl and the draft? And if so, how much did that affect where was was that were you starting to worry like, uh oh, this is going to affect me in the draft? Ended up not. You end up going number one. You end up going number one. Right. But that was definitely not my thought. It was like, I'm fucked. Um, yeah, it's nothing. You know, I didn't plan for that one. It wasn't like, uh, yes. No, it was, it was a rude awakening. I watched the AFC Championship. The Raiders were playing the Bills, and they had to go back there. And so that had to have been a 1990 playoff uh, AFC championship. And I watched it from a cell, um, peering between the bars, looking through a bubble where the sheriffs are, um, and watching that game, watching the Raiders get blown out. And it was a very sobering moment when I saw my grandpa is the one that came that to bail me out. And he made it clear that he had to put up the house, the beach house that I had grown up in, all on the line to get my ass out of the clink, as my grandma called it. And it was uh, a time of trust and faith in um, my dad. He was like, you know what? This is obviously uh, a bump in the road. But if you focus and train and and really get in a place 
that you've never been in uh, physically and mentally, uh, someone will take a chance and they'll take a chance real high. And he was right. Um, Cause I had a lot of people telling me a lot of things, you know, go back to SC, um, all kinds of stuff. And I just uh, had faith in the old man. Cause he had, I, I always knew he had my best interests at heart, even though there were times that it didn't feel that way. Um, he did the best he could with the information he had. And that's, I believe that with all of me. And so I trusted him and I trained and articles were saying nobody's going to touch him to a late 12th rounder as it got closer to a sixth rounder and then went to third and wow, he went, he might go in the first. Um, and it was all about this little workout that I set up and it was one of the first of its kind because I wasn't going to go to the combine because I wasn't of age for one, I was sophomore. And so I just had my own, um, at a LA city college and set it up and I had an old Atlanta Falcons receiver that was on like his 10th year. And I worked out with him for about a week and then just put on a show. And it was one of the most fun experiences because having all these pro teams, and watching who stepped up, and it was Mike Holmgren. He was an assistant with the Niners, and he took over the whole workout. He's like, I want to see you do this, this, all right, let's do this. And I was like, man, I like this guy. I was like, I could definitely do some things with Mike Holmgren. I just knew it right from the workout. And then the workout is about halfway over, and I see Al Davis walk uh, into the stadium and sit between my mom and my dad. And I knew right then, I go, it's done. It's a done deal. And it was. Um, when I got the call from Art uh, Shell, the head coach at the time, and it was, bro, it was straight out of a movie where I got a hotel. I, I did not want any cameras or go back to New York or any of that. I just wanted a, a hotel in Santa Monica. And I obviously had a party. And... My agent knocked on my door super early because the draft starts early back east. And I looked at him and I just went, wake me up when the Raiders are on the clock. And he did exactly that. And right when he woke me up, the freaking phone in the hotel rang and it was art. And I was just excited, ecstatic because the just grew up on the whole Raider mystique and love Kenny Stabler obviously being a lefty, uh, there's not a lot of guys you can pattern yourself after, but he was the one, the snake. There was no, none other like him. And then I got to have a relationship with probably one of my tightest, closest friends while I was there was Fred Blitnikoff, the snake's go-to guy. He was the receiver coach with the Raiders at the time. And Red, um, Fred, I said Red, because that's what they called me. It was Red and Fred, get in here. We'd be in the shower at halftime puffing on cigarettes <laughs> and i hear our red fred get in here <laughs> and fred i swear fred said to me todd you know back in the old days when we were winning uh championships this whole locker room would light up at halftime now there's just two of us uh <laughs> that's how it was that's how it was back then i remember watching right uh, I remember watching as a kid, you know, they think these athletes are all pure. And I see a bunch of guys like sneaking down where the cameras aren't just lighting up the smoke. And yeah, things have, things have definitely changed in 2021. It's the Raiders. 
this is the cool thing. You don't even have to change lockers. I mean, you play big time right. college football in the Coliseum. You get drafted by the team. You're going to play in the Coliseum again. Um, you know, playing for the Raiders, and, and we had Rick Meyer on the program a few weeks ago. Notre Dame nemesis. It sucked, Todd, because I said, you know, I, I was really hesitant to have you on because you're you're from Notre Dame. And then as we got through the interview, he he continued to remind me that all three of his years that he was the quarterback, they beat SC. He beat SC. But anyway, yeah. he said playing against the Raiders when he was a Seahawk, he said he couldn't stand him. He couldn't stand the fans. But then he said he got to play for the Raiders one year. He was a backup there. And he said playing for him was a completely different animal. Cause like you mentioned, it's kind of an outlaw team. Uh, But how was that first year going to the Raiders? Uh, Jay Schrader was the head, was the uh, number one quarterback, but two games in, he gets injured. You take over. Uh, Give me that first experience of of going to uh, uh, the NFL. You know, um, that first year or that first day was one of the longest days of my life. And so after um, the Raiders used me with their first pick, I was whisked away, did interviews the entire day. Um, but I got a, a little time out to go to the facility. And when I w- walked into the locker room, there was Bo Jackson, first guy I see, and he's cleaning out his locker because the year before was the injury against Cincinnati to his hip. And so I met him. He wishes me luck. And I look in my locker and number 16 hanging in there. And I'm like, what? Come on. Really? I guess I, I like Plunkett. I just not a 16 guy. And so I, who do I go to? I go to Fred. I go, Fred, man, look, they gave me fucking 16. I want to wear the snakes. And he goes, hands me a cell phone, said, call him. And so I call Kenny, and he is like the most gracious southern gentleman from Alabama. <laughs> was like, I'm honored if he wore 12. I'm like, sweet. And so that, uh, that experience was um, so jam-packed with, uh, playing with Hall of Famers. I mean, really, come on. Um, it was the year that Al Davis loved resurrecting guys' guys' careers uh, late in their career and bring them to the Raiders and give them, give them life for another couple. And so he, we just acquired Ronnie Lott, Roger Craig, and Ricky Ellison, uh, All-American at SC. A linebacker was Ricky Gray back then at SC. Um, and so it was loaded with Trojans. Don Mosbar was the center, a great t- Trojan. And so all these Trojans I had around me that um, Marcus was the one that really stepped up and was trying to keep me in order. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was really, I was so be- far beyond any reasoning or, or help. Or, but, man, I love him for trying um, really he would, uh, he would be the guy to come to the house when I was late and, and rouse me out of bed. Um, he, he was for one, the best football player I've ever played with. Um, and I was fortunate enough in one series to turn around and hand it to Marcus 
Next play, hand it to Roger Craig. And then the next play, hand it to Eric Dickerson. And I swear, Mike White, the quarterback coach, would be coming watching film and go, Jesus, Red, you got to carry out your fakes. And I'm like, Mike, look it, I got the best seat in the house. And I'm watching Eric, Ronnie, or Roger, and Marcus just do their thing. Like, really? I mean, they were all just beautiful in their own way. Marcus's nickname was Cuddy. He could cut like a cat, and he would fall for four. Um, best short yardage running back I've ever played with, and boy, he could block. Um, he would light guys up blocking. He just could do it all. He's the only guy that I ever played with that when I got knocked unconscious against Kansas City in my first start at the Coliseum, I mean lights out. I was talking a little too much to Neil Smith, and he, re- he retaliated in a big way, and that was a forearm to the face and then piled driven into the turf where it was just lights out. And I hear Marcus say, get up and get in the huddle. I'll get the call. So Marcus gets the signal, comes into the huddle, calls the play, breaks the huddle, looks at me and said, throw it to me. It's on one. And I kind of swagger into the center, and snap the ball and vision start starting to come back. And I just turn and throw it to Marcus, like you said, in the flat, a little swing route and he gains a couple. And by the end of that play, I'm, I'm back, so to speak mentally. And, um, yeah, Marcus, uh, is the only play, let me add this, the only player that I've ever seen get a standing ovation in opposing stadiums. That's a big freaking. That says it all about Marcus as a player. Um, yeah, what a what a, what a great experience! It, it really, Red. It was about what I really wanted to do. I wanted to play at the highest level with the best guys, and I was getting it, and that's all I wanted. NFL versus college. What's the biggest difference you saw? There's no uh, weak links when you make that jump. In college, even big-time college, I don't know about you could say Alabama, there's no weak links um, that you can pick on. You know what I mean? The, back when I was playing, there were teams, all teams that had a guy that you needed to look out for and a guy that you could attack. And they might have a few guys that you can attack if you put them in the right position. So um, it's the same game as it was from high school to college and from college to the NFL, it's just the guys in those positions are playmakers and they all can have a great day. It doesn't matter if they're one in nine, (laughs) these guys are professionals and their uh, performance determines that they eat and feed their families. So there's a lot on the line and um, these athletes, they're, they're not messing around. And my dad used to get on me and say, why are you poking like the lion when you know that these defensive linemen, since he was one himself, and I could listen to that, somebody that's been strapped it on and been in that battle. He said, guys, take plays off. But if you're talking to them, they're going to take it personal and not take plays off. And I found that the hard way against Kansas City and Neil Smith. And like I said, when you're young and invincible, you think you're invincible until your lights are turned out. <laughs> That's <laughs> your intention. <laughs> wow. 
That is that is so true. And you say it's not a weak yeah. link, you know. Baseball in the minor leagues, you you know that which is kind of our version of a big time college football. Right. You look at a player in the other team, go, wow, that guy's really good. He's the best player on that team. You get to the big leagues, everybody's that good at God, each position yeah. as the best player, you know? It's a bang, bang. Right. It, it, the speed of the game goes up. So in the minor leagues, you sure might does. be safe at first base by a half a step. In the big leagues, you're out by a half a step. And that's the main difference I saw. But by you saying no weak link, you know, in college, I could pick on a weak side, you know, whatever the terminology is, but you could find out who was weak on the defensive side of the ball. NFL, even on the weak teams, there's no weakness. And why guys can, I think this is true from my experience is that why can some turn it up? And for a quarterback, all the game is not changing. It's doing what you're saying. It's speeding up. So the only really adjustment that I need to make if I'm the quarterback of a team is I need to get rid of that thing way quicker than I'm used to or have done in the past. And so a prime example, bro, is Kurt Warner coming out of the, U, uh, the Arena Football League back before he signed with the Rams when he was bagging groceries. You've heard the story. Guy's a fucking yep. Hall of Famer for a reason. And he comes out of the Arena League because the Arena League, you can't hold it. I played in it. It's claustrophobic as hell because you're playing on a freaking ice ice rink the size of an ice rink and he's getting rid of it like Dan Marino quick and he's been practicing it for years and he comes and takes the Rams the greatest show on turf to the Super Bowl and that's a prime example why because he wasn't holding on to it (laughs) yeah that's cool (laughs) that's it's it's such a different perspective that everybody doesn't get to hear get rid of the ball you know, get rid of That's it like it. Drew Brees. That's get it. rid of it and like Drew Brees. Team, every team's got a guy or two on that defensive front that is a beast to where he's not even a factor if we're getting rid of that thing. And Brady has masterfully shown that. He doesn't have to move really at all. Just He just needs to slide around and get rid of it. And he's making all these guys look like they're – wasted motion because you don't need a bunch if you obviously can read what you see what you read and read what you see and throw it to the open guy on time and that's what he does masterfully what a freaking just poetry in motion at the quarterback position it's a pleasure to watch and i hope he does it another five you mentioned marcus and what a good guy is i've i've had uh, an opportunity to play in a couple charity golf events where well, he is he, and and what a great player he was but you're you're right he's got that that something special factor that it factor about him it, it's it goes For beyond sure. the, it goes beyond the the running back position like you said people don't give standing ovations in opposing nfl arenas it just doesn't happen but you said he was right. he was trying to look out for you doing the best job he could to get you there on time uh, because of that arrest, you were in what they call, I think, in the NFL, the program. You were having a drug oh, yes, test. I was. And you were faking your drug test, and you were getting people yes, to, I to, was. Pee, to pee for you. It finally comes to head. You get caught. And, and you know, I had Doc Gooden on the program recently. <laughs> Boy, did I ever. <laughs> you know? Go ahead. And, and I, I mean, it's it's funny now. I don't like to make light of it. Uh, yeah, it is funny. But, but – 
you know, I had Doc uh, Gooden on the program, and wow. he's had a he's Good had a magic. lot of. You know, and, and and he was going through it at a similar age that you were going through it. You know, I've gone through it. I, I, I speak about it once in a while. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a billboard, but I didn't go through it as a player. Some of my problems with drinking happened to me when I retired from the game. You know, and I'm almost four years sober and I'm glad I did it. But but this is if if you have an addictive personality and you let it get away from you, it can go to some dark places. I've been to some dark places and, and uh, you know, so I've, I, I can relate, I can relate with you. I can relate with you in a lot of ways, but I couldn't imagine going through that at such a young age and dealing with that at such a young age. Doc talked about it uh, pretty much at length. Um, Tell me about that when, when you're faking, you know, you're 20, you're 20, like you said, you're 20, you're 21 years old and you're faking urine tests already for the drug program. You finally get caught. They end up sending you away to, to rehab for 45 days. Give me that chapter of your life. Well, it was um, uncomfortable <laughs> to say the least because they had just, um, started the substance abuse policy my rookie year lucky me um and really lucky me um it uh before then they had nothing going on about testing anybody and it started and so because of that arrest yes i definitely qualify for this program where now i'm being tested five days a week at practice every day and that puts a freaking damper on a party lifestyle let me tell you um and the fact of the matter is, at one point, the NFL calls, because I'm on a, I mean, they got me on my cell phone at any time of the day. They can call. They pretty much said, you, you don't stop using drugs. You can't play in our league. And I think I just can't back, well, then I'm not playing in the league because I can't not, not. It's my solution. I cannot deal with you for sure. Um, the media, my team, anybody around me, unless I anesthetize and I don't know any other way. So it's not even a choice really, um, of making a decision about playing or not. I can't play if I, if, if that's the terms. And it took, uh, two years in a training camp. And when they let me know uh, that uh, Al's a businessman, even though I was his boy and he loved me and I loved that man, um, it was out of his hands. And so when I sat down in front of him, he was like, I've never been in this situation. I hope I never will. But the NFL has got your number and you're being suspended for a year. And the next positive is blackball for life. And so he said, I'm not going to pay you your third uh, year of your contract because the most of that I had gotten paid up to that point, and we're going to let you go. And I was equally as ecstatic on that day as draft day, if you can believe it. I was driving to practice, um, listening to Mark and Brian, because I loved those guys at the time, the morning radio show. And they did a poll in L.A. Who would you want? Who do you want to be in L.A.? And number one was Magic before he came out with his HIV um, diagnosis, and I was number two. And I about crashed. I was like, "There's no fucking way anybody would want this." 
if they knew what it was like and how I feel. Um, and so it was, it then, and I didn't know when I'd walked away, um, what I would do. I didn't have any idea, but I knew I was, I was done, um, with this chapter and, uh, yeah, it's been a freaking journey since, let me tell you, Brad. You go from playing for the Raiders, Al Davis saying, I'm going to let you go, until two years later, till, till 1994, when you signed with Winnipeg in the CFL. You end up blowing out your knee, and, and that ended up not yeah. being a thing. But yeah. when you first got released from the Raiders – what did you, where, where was Todd Marinovich for the next two years? What'd you do? I packed up my Toyota Land Cruiser, um, which a lot of kids are disappointed when I do speaking at high school. This just tells you where we're at. Um, when the kid's number one question is, what car did you drive when you play? <laughs> um, <laughs> Land Cruiser's really not left. sexy enough for me. Yeah. What's that? The Land Cruiser is the Land Cruiser isn't sexy enough for him. No, no, but it was the best <laughs> car I've ever owned. So I could pack in six to eight friends and longboards on the top of the car and just head south or north, and that's what I did for months. Ninety four, you end up blowing out your knee. So the Winnipeg, the oh, Blue Bombers thing brutal. never happens. So now. 1999 comes around. Uh, yeah. You're reinstated. You're reinstated. You you are eligible to play in the NFL. Um, Correct. Again, you end up you end up not. You end up signing with the BC Lions. I guess there was some interest in you coming back to the NFL. Where was your mind at that point? Because you'd been through a lot. Uh, you'd gone through a lot. You had this addiction. Where were where were you? And and what made that decision in your, in your mind to, you know what, I'm going to give football another shot. <laughs> Cause I was out of money. <laughs> yeah. I, I just asked the questions. I figured it had something to do with that. <laughs> yeah. So, so when you're a college dropout and your only trade is throwing the football, that was my, na- that was my natural thought, right? was like, I need to make some money. Um, how do I do that? And, the NFL was, had the biggest payday, and so I had a few workouts. I worked out with Seattle, and then I uh, flew back to Chicago and blew up the workout. Um, they were ready to sign, and I said, we got to just do this physical. And the physical showed when I sat on the training table, and you, they said, keep your toes towards the air, or I mean towards the sky, and keep them up. They pulled them down, and my left one was just floppy, and I didn't know. I was like, "What the fuck?" And I go, "Maybe this has something to do with the sciatica, uh, sciatica pain that's shooting down my ass." <laughs> and so I couldn't pass the physical. Long story short, I made the next uh, best decision. Where do they not have drug testing? And that was Canada. So sign me up. So you went to the BC Lions. How'd that go? Oh, it was all bad. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I can't even. I call it the dark years. And, man, bro, I, I, you've probably been to British Columbia and been to Vancouver. What a beautiful. It's where the Rockies meet the freaking Pacific Ocean. So if you've never been, picture that. 
Um, and with a five star city, just beautiful. I don't see any of that, bro. I'm locked in my little apartment in white rock, British Columbia, making trips to downtown to the needle exchange once, once a week, right before game day, getting a fresh pack of 50 syringes. And it's a heroin epidemic in Vancouver. And it's not what I'm used to. It's this really potent stuff called China white that put me in a place that was the darkest place I've ever been. And I would have never made it out of Vancouver if it wasn't for a teammate named Mo Elovanibi. And he was an Outland Trophy winner, uh, played in the NFL, but was finishing up his career up in BC because he was from Canada. And this guy knocked on my door and said, bro, pack your shit, get your dog, I'm driving you home. And we drove from Vancouver to Newport Beach, and I thought I was going to freaking die uh, on the withdrawals when we hit Portland. And it was 1999 changing over to the new millennium, and I'll never forget it. If I had a handgun, I would have put it in my mouth. I had never experienced withdrawal pain like it on earth. And if it wasn't for Mo, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Wow. Teammates. Yeah, teammates have come through for me since SC days and on. Um, there's something special about going to, it's not war, and it's, um, but it is super emotionally charged intensity and a lot of pain involved that you create a bond with your team that can never be broken. And I'll never forget guys that when I look them in the eye, I know I've been to battle with you and it's special and it's real. And I'm so stoked that I got that experience, even though probably wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, but because I, like I said, that I got the train going and it was a runaway lo locomotive, I said, you know what? I'm just going to jump on this thing and ride it. And I'm so glad I did. And so glad I got off when I did. L.A. Avengers in 2000, you mentioned the Arena League. <laughs> you threw 10 touchdown oh. passes in a game. Oh, dope sick, might I, might I add. And it was such a nightmare in Houston. Um, had a, a friend of mine travel that would keep me from doing all the heroin. Because if you do all the heroin, you're going to be hurting like I was on that night. And I shit through my pants uh, because you cannot control any movements. And we're wearing white, obviously. We're away. And I say to the, the equipment man, says to me, Todd, you shit through two. This is your last and final fucking pair. And I am just trying to get the game over as fast as possible so we can get on that plane and I can get well. And we couldn't stop them. They couldn't stop us. And I threw 10. Uh, but the game just seemed to go on forever. Wow. And, and, Man, it goes on and on. 2004, you're skateboarding. <laughs> you get pulled over again, arrested again. In and out of rehabs. Uh, 
Can we get wow. to the last arrest? Because it's all time uh, classic. Can we just skip to that one? Because there's probably. I, I, I want. I want to hear about it. I want to hear all about it. Then I want to talk about your artwork and and okay and Todd Marinovich today. Yeah, give me that last one. Give me that last arrest. So I'm last sure it's. I'll is, tell you what. If you're saying it's going to be good, I'm expecting it's going to be really good. <laughs> <laughs> so from that period, like I told you that they were some dark definite dark years um homeless but never truly homeless because i just knew so many people um that i became i not only surfed but i became expert couch surfer and um got arrested i lost track at 12 13 times but the last one was so memorable and it was my most humiliating of them all um when it broke because my decisions break like this. And when the headline broke, I think I saved how just Marinovich, back your backyard drug romp naked. And I don't even know what that means for one, but what I was doing would seem rational to me at the time after being in a, a, up probably four or five days in almost a psychosis state of skateboarding in Irvine, which is a crime anyways, why would you even do it? But I'm skateboarding in the middle of summer and it's 95 degrees, probably at midnight. And I look over and I see a pool and the pool looks identical to my in-laws pool up in LA, but I am not there. Um, I'm in Irvine and I proceed to let myself in, lose what I'm wearing and start skinny dipping. Cause it seemed like a good idea until the cops show up when I am laying there in the corner of the pool with my elbows on the side, just chilling, just enjoying the night air. I hear cops talking to, somebody on the balcony above me. And I'm thinking, where do I come into play in this conversation until I hear one of them say, can you turn on your spotlight you have here in the backyard? And she flips it on. I hear a high pitched scream like it's from a Hitchcock movie. And then bum rush by five officers telling me to quit resisting when I'm fucking naked. <laughs> Bro, and so that ended in a way that changed my whole perception of rude awakening. It was a complete rude awakening at the next level because I was in another frickin' hemisphere, um, not in a sober mind, obviously, but cops tend to snap you out of any... um, foggy any foggy foggy state of mind and so i was shocked back into reality and really really brought to um a place where it's time to make a freaking decision like this is i don't want this anymore um i had to walk like seven miles when they released me the only time in my history of criminal activity which usually is possessing drugs and alcohol um, that I'd ever been released on my own recognizance. I was like, what the heck? You're letting me go in 
obviously in a paper suit. So I'm walking down in Irvine in the morning, 8 a.m. the next day, about seven miles to my mom's house in a paper suit, um, wondering, is this what it comes to? Um, wow. And from, you know what, from that point on, I have had ups and downs, but it's gotten me closer to where I want to be. And how, how I sum it up when I got a, I got a text message from a close friend, um, Shannon, and she works for the Raider organization has, and they've been like a family to me since, um, since I've left. It's, it's really unbelievable. Um, and I talk, was talking with Shannon. She said, Todd, how are you feeling? And I said, you know, truly feelings come and go, but I'm the, more, I'm the most grounded that I've ever been. And that right there is a grounding from past experience and making mistakes. And you know what? From the outside, they might not seem like I'm learning anything. But people um, along the way have reached out and have tried so many times lending a hand, and it all added up. Not one was discredited. They all added up to a time where I've come to realize, like, the most important thing in my life is showing up for my kids, present on a daily basis, consistent and like a tree there just for protection, knowing I'm always there. I'm not getting in their way. I'm staying out of their way and, and let them live and make mistakes. And my little Coco said to me yesterday about mistakes. And I was like, there aren't none. There truly are none. The greatest inventions were, um, arrived at mistake, failure, or failure, failure after failure. So what is a mistake truly? There are none. They're just getting you closer to the place and a person that you want to be. And so, man, I have given myself a break because I was, I'm, I'm very cruel when I start aware, uh, being aware of my thoughts, Brad, in a way that an example is when I do a lot of sh uh, sharing of my experience all over, whoever wants to hear it, you know what, I'm there to give it. And what I do now is I bring my guitar with me because I write songs and they come from my experience and they come from the heart. But I'll tell you what, my head works on me prior to whipping that guitar out every time. Tells me lies about nobody wants to hear it. It doesn't fit this format. Whatever it may be, my head's telling me lies trying to sabotage me. And I'm at a place now where I can witness these crazy thoughts, really, just sit back and go, wow, that was violent, or that's kind of cruel. And for the most part, I'm getting better at saying thanks for sharing. I'm not, that's just not happening today. And man, I, I get example after example of not listening when I don't listen to those negative thoughts and I just take action contrary man, I get so much connection. And, and when it, it's like my favorite fucking thing to do is now is to connect with people on a real level. It's, it's magical. 
and I'm addicted and to it. And it's all, <laughs> and I'm, uh, it's so, but it's so cool me hearing you talk like this, and it and it is, and and you talk about sharing your your experiences, man. You've had some freaking tough, a tough road to hoe, man. You've been through a lot of stuff, and, and just by by. Hey, this is this is what, to look out for. This look out for this, this, and this. By you sharing that with another person, by you giving yourself there, I mean, it's got to make you feel better. Like you're giving back, and it's putting you in a peaceful place. It's cool that you think about you know your kids now, and just thinking, no, man, we all make mistakes. I'm going to let you make your mistakes. I'm not going to be there to catch you every mistake you make. I'm there to be a dad and be a disciplinarian. But we're going to make mistakes. And, and it's just cool hearing that. And and uh, I know I've been sitting here listening to your story. You know, I know from afar, we all kind of do, you know, I'd check in with you over the years. I'd check in with Mark. How's Todd doing? You know, sometimes it was, right. hey, he's doing really good. Sometimes it wasn't. But uh, like right. I said, I, I went through my own time in that. And, and it's no fun. And it does. And it can be dark. And it can be, you know, a, a, a real tough place to be in. And we all got to find our, our way out of it. And it's it's cool to hear that you're getting in that place now, uh, truly. And because we know each other, you know, we weren't best friends at USC. We we're acquaintances. But talking right. to you today, hearing your story, hearing where you were, uh, hearing where you've been, hearing where you're going now, you know, it gives me hope. And, and uh, it's cool to hear. And I think people listen to the Boom podcast out there. You know, you might give somebody hope like, all right, you can go through all this and come out the other side and, and be a living example. And I think that's cool. Um, tell me about me your artwork. This, I know it's always go ahead. Before we get into the art is that because this is truly an epidemic that we're living in a drug at drug epidemic people are dying every freaking minute is that what do you do when you have a loved one or yeah a loved one could be a relative could be a friend um we all know one that's the thing it wasn't it used to be a, a dirty little secret that there was an addict in the family um now we need to start talking about it and how how do you deal with somebody that is on that road of destruction. And from my experience, the best way is to love them right through it. And you know what, there's debate about that. All as I know is from my experience, the ones that looked at me with love and compassion and with support, that was what carried me through. The shaming doesn't work. The shaming drives someone deeper. That stance or that position is not working. And just to see the criminal system not locking people up is a huge change in the right direction. But we, get a, we have to go even more so because people are dying on this shit. And we need to talk about it and, and get these people uh, help. And you know what that help is? A connection. It's all about a connection. So... Uh, let's pull them out of these freaking dark, dark places mentally and physically and love on them. And that's, a, I'll get off the soapbox and, um, but I'm passionate about it because I've lost my best friend to this. And I continue to hear, um, just horror stories and kids that are, you know, like I was experimenting, but dying because of, the strength of this fentanyl and, and drugs like it. 
So um, changing gears, um, I'm the most blessed person on the planet because I get to uh, create for a living, man. And I've been doing it for 10 years, uh, 11 or 12. I don't. I lose track because I lose track of time. It doesn't feel like a job. Um, my kids get involved in uh, different projects. Um, I get to make my own hours. It's a freaking dream job. And uh, what I, what we've been doing that's finally coming to a uh, an end is a documentary that was um, been in the works for eight years. Um, and it turned out to be a, a dear friend of mine, Sean Pamphalon, who's the filmmaker. And after eight years spending with somebody, you really get to know him and what a great dude. And this film will, will be released next year, and it's entitled Buzzy. Um, and... I get to actually tomorrow. I'm so I'm like a giddy schoolgirl, Brett. I get to fly to Oregon with my kids and record the soundtrack for this thing. Because um, I mentioned I've, I'm an artist, and there's so many ways to express yourself, and one of them is through song, and I love it. And so I get to uh, actually actualize a long, long, long time dream. Um, and that is to record an album. So I'm so stoked. That is awesome. And where, where can uh, people find your artwork? They can go to my website, marinovichart.com. And um, is it, that's what it's called? Let me check a second here. I think it might be marinovich.art. I don't even know. But if you pull me, you'll find it. And the cool right. thing about Everybody's it is, I art. all the you want to get in touch with me, I answer all the emails and it's a one man show, which, uh, hopefully I'll get some help. Um, but as of now, if you got a question or a project, you just email me and I love to paint. So you'd be doing me a favor. Very cool. World's a lot different, Todd, than when me and you were growing up. What advice you give, uh, to kids growing up today? You know, um, do what you love, man, oh, man, um, and do it with all of you. And that's how you know if you love it. And you touched on it earlier. Um, you spent a lot of time doing it because you loved it. And I, I did also, man. I loved playing basketball. It was such a, uh, such a cool experience. So if it's sports, go that route and, and be all there and be all in it. And if it's not, if it's another direction, like art, music, um, do that. Um, I don't think uh, the only limit is yourself. And um, set goals and do something. Work toward them. And it's such a uh, – I don't think it matters as long as you're all in. If you're all in, um, there'll be bumps along the road, but uh, those are just speed bumps, and you're going to get to where you're going to get. So I, uh, I'm a big proponent to just find something because you know what? Sports aren't for everybody. Um, I, that was just my route and I'm grateful for it. The lessons that I learned, it wasn't about winning now that, you know, now that I look back hindsight, it really wasn't, it was about the experience of it. And I learned way more in a loss than I ever did in a win. That's very well said. Todd Marinovich, it's been very cool, and it and it's been a pleasure, yeah. and and it's awesome to hear where you're going, where you're at, and where you're headed, and uh, 
definitely stay in touch. And what we do each and every Boone podcast is we bring back in your favorite, the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, for a question from the fans. Dan? Hey, guys. Hi, Todd. Hey, Dan. All right. This question question comes from Mark in Seattle, and he wants to know this. Todd, on the field, what was your favorite moment? I know what wasn't my favorite moment, and that was up where our buddy is in the Pacific Northwest. I got two nightmare memories. One, University of Washington playing the Huskies. They went on to win the national championship. They beat us 30 to nothing. They drowned out the SC band. That's not easy. And if I could have raised a white flag at halftime, I would have. It was a gnarly experience. And they even made T-shirts after one of my quotes after the game that said, all I saw was purple, and it was true. Um, funny note, side note, flying back from uh, Seattle playing the Huskies, I'm looking at the program, and I'm looking at their defense, nine out of the 11 guys from L.A., and I'm like, whoa, we're getting beat by our own guys here. Something ain't right. And then the other was at the Kingdom against Seattle, and I'm playing against the guy on the defensive front named Russ, uh, Kennedy Cortez, a Hall of Famer. Well, you can't hear shit in that kingdom. It was the loudest place on the planet. I thought the Huskies were loud. Try being in a concrete dome. Sound is bouncing off as loud as jet engines, and I'm trying to make an audible. And my guard is standing next to me, can't hear a word I'm saying. I change the play, and when you change the play, it automatically goes on too. Well, I'm worried about Cortez, who's lined up right over the ball, and I go on one. And Don Mosbar is a veteran center. Instead of not snapping it, he snaps it so I don't jump offside. But by him snapping it, Cortez swims him, jumps on my back, and gives me a pile drive on that turf, and my day was over. <laughs> yes. So fond memories of the Pacific Northwest, not. Um, but they stick, you know what, they stick with me and um, I survived it. But to answer his question, the, my favorite moment on the field, uh, it's got to be UCLA USC. Um, 45 42, hitting Johnny Morton in the back of the end zone, being laid out on my back, rolling over to see if it was a touchdown um, because I heard the crowd erupt, but that UCLA-USC game, you don't know it's pretty even in eruptions. And so I look over my shoulder and I see a sea of red helmets in that end zone, and the first person that's standing over me is my uncle, um, Mark's dad, saying, you did it, motherfucker. You did it. <laughs> <laughs> Craig Ferdig. Right. What a classic. I was such a great uncle. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Pleasure is all mine. Mailbag. Um, Brady, you know that sound, don't you? It's mailbag time, Dan. That's right, Brett. It is mailbag time. This one comes from Kim in Texas. Brett, who is your AL MVP right now? Uh, right now and at the All-Star break, same guy. It's Otani. It's not even close. Uh, I completely... 
believe me, what Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is doing, chasing that triple crown, unbelievable. What a great year. Uh, there's a few guys out there having some big-time years. This is something that's never been done in the history of the game. No one's even close to doing what Otani's done this year. I would vote for him if he was an, doing an average job as a hitter uh, and pitching decent, but but he's not. He's pitching at an all-star level, and he's second in the league in home runs. So he's playing both sides of the ball. Well, no, that would be a football scenario. He's pitching and hitting. Never been done before. He, he's doing it both at an all-star level. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever see this again. Without a doubt, closed case for me, Otani. All right. Back to the mailbag we go. All right, Brett. This one comes from Buzz in Jacksonville. And Brett, what is it like for a September call-up? September call-up. Well, uh, I never got called up in September. I got called up in August. I thought I was going to be a September call-up. Uh, it's your first time in the big leagues, usually. You know, Usually it's that first time. It's your, man, you go from, from a stadium that has two decks to a stadium that has four decks. There is a difference. Uh, you stay in really nice hotels and you fly private planes. <laughs> you're not on a rickety bus and you're not taking flights at 6 in the morning. Um I don't know. It's kind of the first. I I just look at it as my first time in the big leagues. It's like, wow, this is what I've been chasing my whole life. And this is day one of it, you know. And usually there's some humble pie and and some learning experiences in there. (laughs) I know for sure I had a lot of learning experiences, but it's a thrill, especially for that guy. It's his first call up, first time in the big leagues. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content is Liz Landry. Share the Boone Podcast with neighbors, friends, brothers, sisters, parents, anybody you know that loves the sports and also likes the game of baseball as well. Make sure they subscribe to the Boone Podcast so they and you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.